Hey there, you're listening to A Time of Monsters, a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron. And today we have a very special episode. I've been meaning to cover the modern far right for a while now, from the 1970s until today, and to help me explore the creeping fash, I was joined by Daniel Harper from the anti-fascist podcast I Don't Speak German. Daniel and his co-host Jack Graham go where few others can stomach, into the online subculture of white nationalists, white supremacists, and neo-Nazis to see and hear what they're saying to each other in their safe spaces. Uh, this episode covers a lot of ground using Kathleen Ballou's 2018 book, Bring the War Home, as a map to outline the trajectory of the far right since the end of the Vietnam War. Daniel also brings in his own research to help me understand how we got here and we ended up talking about everything from the historical impact of political economy on the far right to the impulse of some ostensibly on the left who are welcoming fascists with open arms and why the left should never fucking do that. <laughs> there will be a link in the show notes uh, to I Don't Speak German and uh, some relevant episodes to this conversation. It's sprawling and we talk about a lot of things. Um, I mean, this is over 40 years of history that we're talking about and cramming in as much as we can, but uh, I'm gonna make sure that Daniel um, and hopefully Jack come back on to uh, talk a little bit more about some of the things we uh, touched on in this episode. And I really recommend you guys checking out their podcast and consider becoming a patron and supporting uh, the great work that they're doing. So I think you guys will enjoy it. And um, oh yeah, before I forget, uh, rest in piss, Rush Limbaugh. Burn in hell, motherfucker. I really wanted to have you on, man, because I love uh, your podcast with Jack. Uh, I don't speak German because uh, as you do, I have a morbid obsession with the fash. So like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess like, I mean, obviously, like mostly stems from being black, but, you know, also just being a leftist, sort of uh, know, knowing your enemy, you know, which is another great podcast. But not it's not about the far right as you guys get into that, uh, that really the abyss you know, that most people don't want to, the deep, dark corners of the internet and human the, life. The worst of the worst, and then the people worse than that, and then the people worse than that. And then, you know, in, a, exactly. in Zeno's paradox of awfulness of fascism, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's what we do, yeah. There's a pantheon, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's a spectrum, and then, like, you eventually get to the, to the like, the worst of the worst of the worst. And then at that point, um, that's where I'm standing with a microscope and a microphone. All right, cool, cool. So uh, I guess like to give you a kind of uh, the trajectory I wanted to take, um, I'm going to recommend this book right off the bat, uh, Bring the War Home by Kathleen Ballou, um, which is the subtitle is The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. And she chronicles the what she calls the white power movement. We can get into that a bit. These terms, white nationalists, white supremacists, like, you know, um, white power, even like, you know, fascists. Um, but she she chronicles this movement from the 70s, like right around the Vietnam War up until like the 90s and even up until the 2000s, I think, towards the end. So what I want to do with you is kind of, you know, I, I just got back into the book. I never finished reading it the first time I got it years ago. So um, we don't have to follow, you know, chapter by chapter, obviously. But <laughs> Well, I, I, wouldn't know, be, I, I didn't I wouldn't be able to do that off the top of my head anyway. So you know, we're fine. <laughs> exactly. And I would just have Kathleen Blue, all right, if I, if I was going to do that. <laughs> I would love um, to listen to that, by the way. Um, yeah. Oh man, she's 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 awesome. I I wanted to have her on, but I had to go through like a you know I guess her press yeah like not secretary, but you know all that. So I was like yeah. 
also, I think it's helpful. I don't know her politics. I'm assuming like she's leftist, but I think it's it's better for me, at least, and uh, my audience to listen to two leftists talk about this sure. because there is an urgency that um, sort of becomes removed from just academia yeah. or like um, study. And I think that's important for us to talk about. But, um, you know, I just want to go through the 70s. I, the layout, the framework that she sets um, through the 70s up until now. I want to start with like the Vietnam War. Sure. Right. Because um, I think that's an important place where there was discontent um, with the government, um, there was economic instability, uh, there was distrust of the government, and there was also the coalescing of uh, neo-Nazi and um, clan neo-Nazis and Klansmen, which people would think like, well, aren't these people tight already because they have mutual interests? And it's like, well, no, because, you know, Klansmen, at least they're, you know, grandfathers or fathers, right? Those that fought like in the Vietnam War, their fathers, grandfathers actually fought Nazis in World War II. Yeah, well, some of them did, sure. I guess to just remove it just from Kathleen Ballou's book, but I do think the Vietnam War is a pivotal mo- moment in um you know, the the nascent beginnings of this right wing, far right movement. What do you think it was about the Vietnam War that like kind of kickstarted this? Yeah, no, uh, the Vietnam War is definitely a, a kind of a fulcrum point or an inflection point um, in the in the kind of white power movement or the white nationalist movement. And we can talk about what these terms mean. But I think Belu's term and her terms she uses white power. I'm perfectly comfortable using her terminology on her terms. Uh, another book that I would highly recommend is uh, Blood and Politics by Leonard Zeskind, um, which runs um, from the late 40s, uh, from right after World War II and sort of like George Lincoln Rockwell and, and uh, those kind of guys, all the way up into uh, 2002. And it uh, runs the, uh, the basic thesis of that book is that the uh, white nationalism, white power, um, these, these kinds of vaguely defined groups uh, run along two tracks. And you have a uh, kind of what we would call a vanguardist track or what Zeskin calls a vanguardist track which are um, kind of separatist groups that are trying to uh, build a uh, some kind of political movement. Or not a political movement. They're trying to build a uh, using kind of violent means or using some sort of uh, collapsitarian ideology that's going to, the system around us is going to collapse and we're going to build some kind of uh, state, some kind of white nationalist state of some kind or another out of the ashes of that. And then the other side of that are this kind of are like movementarians or mainstreamers. Um, there are different terms that we use. Zeskin uses mainstreamers. And these are people that act, that look and act a lot more like uh, traditional politicians who are trying to, you know, build, do election drives, who are trying to build kind of ordinary political power within something that looks like an ordinary political structure in the United States. And so um, in the 70s, um, starting in the late 60s, actually, but in the 70s, you get David Duke and... Um, David Duke uh, nowadays is just kind of a, uh, you know, a very old man um, speaking to an increasingly irrelevant yeah. audience, mostly about health supplements. Um, he has comedic uh, value now, but he has back comedic then, value now, yes, but yeah. he was he was an enormously important figure in terms of. Uh, you know, being one of those first kind of suit and tie Nazis in this kind of modern era. And um, one of the things that Zeskind argues in Blood and Politics is that he Nazifies the Klan. He actually takes mm. these Klan groups, which are 
um, anti-immigrant, they're anti-black, they're anti, but they're not like kind of full-on national socialists. They are typically not anti-Semitic, although that uh, varies a lot from group to group. Um, one of the issues you run into with the Klan in particular is that there are so many different types of clans and so many small groups, and they vary significantly even among, you know, even like in one parish in Louisiana, you might have three different clans with three different kind of base ideologies. Um, one of the one of the first big things that uh, David Duke does is he comes out and does this this kind of a clan activity and this kind of border clan border watch activity. And so he stages this big thing on the U.S. Mexico border, I believe in San Diego. And it's a, this kind of like um, big moment. And that's in the that's in the late 70s in this kind of aftermath of Vietnam. And the reason that Vietnam is important is that it creates this sort of group of disaffected veterans. A lot of people either served in Vietnam or who, you know, kind of saw it, watched it on television. But there, were, there was this great big disaffectation in terms of like American empire and what American empire could be around the war. There was this thought that we lost the war and the the, the stab in the back myth that, you know, is always kind yeah. of a problem when you run into, uh, <laughs> you know, when reactionaries want to, you know, want to defend why they lost uh, this war. It's always like, well, you know, the liberals or, you know, kind of whatever. And it ends up being yeah. the Jews. It's always the Jews, right? Yeah. Stabbed us in the back and didn't lie. They us cost us national it. glory. They cost us national glory. And like back in the day, back in the 50s, when my when my dad was around, it was a better time. And now we got all these, you know, these black people are demanding their rights and, you know, women are out there and there are gay people and, you know, women's live and all this sort of thing. And all these kind of like social dynamics that you see in the 60s and 70s merge with this uh, kind of uh, weaponized and heavily militarized uh, group of kind of survivalists um, or kind of loose confederation of survivalists, I guess I would say, uh, who come back from Vietnam and who have an agenda and who actively want to pursue uh, an agenda of creating some form of white ethnostate using the skills they learned from uh, their military adventures during Vietnam. And so you see a whole lot of this stuff. Um, you know, David Duke, I, I kind of He's he's a weird figure because he kind of goes back and forth between being a kind of a mainstreamer and being a, a vanguardist. He's a mainstreamer who often works with vanguardists. Um, he is uh, deeply connected with the uh, the group um, who end up trying to uh, invade the island of Dominica and create a, a white ethnostate there. Um, one of the people involved in that is Don Black, um, who after serving a prison sentence goes on to create the uh, Stormfront, uh, first the BBS forum. And then later, the uh, original white power website um, mm -hmm. in uh, 1995 or 1996. So, um, I mean, these connections kind of go kind of go all the way back. Sorry, I know that's mm -hmm. kind of a little bit of a rambling. Answer, no, but that's the that's it, all this stuff gets really complicated very quickly. So it, it does. And I think that's why it's helpful to kind of like um, compartmentalize as much as possible, but without right. losing like the overlarging narrative, like, you know, in these decades. But I wanted to touch on something that you brought up. Um, and that we kind of talked about in the beginning, this terminology of like white power versus, um, you know, white nationalists, white supremacists, which is you heard that a lot during Trump's presidency. Um, but in, in the beginning of the book, Kathleen Blue has a note to the readers where she uh, she explains why she used that terminology. And from what I can gather, it's, it's mostly because this is the term that these groups use at the time. They call themselves yeah. white power groups. And for me, it's helpful to think of it as in in opposition to black power. Right. Yeah, it's it's um, literally named yeah. that originally. Sorry not to interrupt you. No, no, George no, Lincoln, exactly. George Lincoln Rockwell uses the term black power as a way of using the legitimate leftist revolutionary energy created by mm -hmm. the black power movement in the 60s and 70s. He uses he, he's literally taking that away and trying to co-opt that. Um, it's the exact same phenomenon that we see with 
uh, you know, all lives matter, white lives matter. It's, you know, uh, white, white supremacist, white nationalist, white power movements routinely take their rhetoric and their um, means from leftist organizing and and co-opt it for their own ends because they see the like legitimate gains that can be gotten by leftist exactly. organizing. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there's a long there's a long history there, but which we'll get and get into it if you want to. But yeah, no, we will. And I think that I think the best example that most people know historical example are the Nazis, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, like co-opting leftist language and then purging unionists, purging socialists and communists. Right. And I mean, there, there. You brought up as well that there, the, this bifurcation of this movement, where it's more mainstreamed, you know, which David Duke kind of tried to bridge that gap between like the mainstream and the the radicals. But I guess what's what's interesting about that is that that eventually during Vietnam, it's it seems to be a further weaponization of these grievances, you know, yeah. that have gone back to I guess you could even use Nixon, right, and the silent majority. Right. All these disaffected white people. And then, you know, after Nixon and Watergate and further distrust of the government with, you know, the debacle in Vietnam, you start to see these really fringe ideas that are fueled by government distrust, that are fueled by the anxiety and the fear of a changing country demographically as well, culturally as well. And you see that start to be mainlined even more, right, in mainstream Republicans up until we get to like Reagan, right, in right. the 80s, right? And we can talk about that too. But um, yeah, I think, I think <laughs> yeah, so many yeah, things, yeah. so many things, we can, so many things. Yeah. See, there, yeah, there's this whole, a, yeah, just pick yeah. a topic, we'll, we'll go, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's, let's kind of jump in a little bit to, uh, to the 80s then, because I mean, the 70s, I think the best place to kind of leave it off is this discontent with Vietnam, this anti-government, um, you know, sentiment, and also again the coalescing of neo-Nazis and Klansmen and the sort of mainstreaming of um, this, these fringe groups until we get to like Reagan in the '80s. Now, Reagan famously <laughs> uh, launched his campaign in Neshoba, Mississippi, uh, mm-hmm. in 1980. Right, uh, Neshoba, Mississippi. Uh, for those who are not aware, which uh, you know. I assume, based on the noise you just made, that that's yeah. the uh, that's the place where uh, the three uh, civil rights yeah. workers were murdered. Yep. Um, exactly. And, uh, the, the the terrible film Mississippi Burning was made from that. Um, but there are a number of uh, good books written about that uh, about that about that period. Um, but uh, oh, we are not afraid. That's the title. There's a great book that I read a few years ago um, about that uh, incident, and it covers the entire sort of history of the three civil rights workers, where they come from, who they were, what they were actually trying to do, and a lot of the kind of internal movement struggles in the in the left in the kind of civil rights era about like is fighting for voting even really something that we need to be working on? Should we be working for you know kind of economic mobility? Shouldn't we be working for other things? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's because like local clan groups, which had tacit or explicit approval by the Chamber of Commerce conservative types in those areas, mm. um, ultimately <laughs> uh, were uh, fighting against voting rights in order to prevent political power being gained. And so uh, one of the things that ends up happening, at least per per this book, is that uh, leftist organizers uh, end up kind of having to fight for electoralism because that's the axis on which uh, African-Americans in that time and place were actually being actively oppressed. And so in some sense, the right kind of chooses the, uh, by being the establishment, they actually choose the the nature of the fight. They choose the grounds on which the battle is fought. And, and this is something that we kind of see over and over again in terms of fighting these movements. Um, I, I kind of mentioned, you know, one of the things that you see, particularly in kind of the 60s, 
and in these kind of uh, clan organizations is that, uh, you know, I said implicitly or explicitly. And, you know, there was often a sense that within the within the cities, within the towns and kind of the more urbanized areas, there was often a sense of like a kind of genteelism that you see from like the Chamber of Commerce. It's not so much as they like like black people as much as they know it's bad for business if yeah. black people are just murdered on the street. Yeah. And so while you could be a civil rights worker and walk the streets fairly uh, unmolested in many, in many uh, larger cities, but you go, you know, 20 minutes outside of town or even 10 minutes outside of town and you were putting your life in, in danger um, as, as you, as you are in, you know, yeah. in many of these places today, I'm not trying to, you know, put a, put a great spin on what the South or, or, or whatever is like today, but that, that, that's kind of the dynamic that you see. And so there is this, again, push and pull within uh, conservative groups, conservative business types, even, and uh, kind of, kind of violent clan activity. And one of the, one of the kind of after effects, one of the lingering after effects of the civil rights era and the kind of exposing um, this kind of activity by by journalists and through media and by you know leftists and et cetera et cetera is that uh, the Klan groups get further and further um, out out of the mainstream. They get further and further marginalized within respectable politics. And so then, what do they do? They put on the suits and ties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they go off and they and they do their thing. And then they um, and then as the Klan guys, as these as these kind of like white power groups lose even the vestige of mainstream support, they start to kind of push into well, we don't know. We no longer have a way of solving our problems with a uh, political through through kind of the levers of political power, and they become. I don't like to use the term that they become accelerationists. They become, again, another term I don't like, but extremists. They, yeah. they start to become radicalized and they start to say, well, the only option that we have is to use physical violence, right? And this is something that we've seen in even in the last few years. This kind of, there's a push-pull between a the sort of like violent Adam Waffen types who just want to tear the system down and like let, let everything burn and then let things rise from the ashes who are encouraging mass shootings and the more politicized we're trying to do something using something that looks like political power. We're trying to build a movement through word of mouth, through online, et cetera, et cetera. And there is these groups don't often like each other, but they sort of rely on, rely on each other because they're part of the same kind of fundamental ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I think is interesting? And um, I've talked about this uh, with my co-host before, but you know, the fact that the right really is a big tent, like or like party or a political institution, you know, I mean, you can have, you know, people that are on the fringe, right, that are still subsumed in that group. And then you can have, you know, what people would think of as like, you know, McCain Republicans, you know, sure, yeah. um, you know, or Reagan Republicans. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Nowadays, George W. Bush is like the sensible moderate. Right. <laughs> exactly. 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 And most of the groups that I follow, like they left Trump behind like ages ago. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, not to sorry, not to jump, not to jump too far ahead. But, you know, that's something that surprises people. It's like, wait, the Nazis don't like Donald Trump. It's like, no, they think he's a, ruled by the Jews at this point. You know, yeah. sorry to sorry to kind of yeah, use no. that terminology openly, but like that's I no. hope that you understand and the audience will understand that I'm not, you know, I'm not oh, saying we're, that. we're going to yeah. get into some dark shit yeah, yeah, like yeah. towards the end when we talk about <laughs> poker, like the QAnon and like post Trump. So yeah. people should be prepared for this. <laughs> yeah, um, this only gets darker. Um, I like to think I don't speak German as the literal darkest podcast in human history. So, oh, it's like driving, like entering like a tunnel <laughs> on the road. And it's just like, when does this end? <laughs> you know what I mean? It ends when the podcast, <laughs> when the episode ends. 
Routinely, um, I get a DM that's just like, "How do you not despair?" Here's a dollar. <laughs> you know, oh like, man, this is this is why this podcast is called "The Time of Monsters." Right. I'm continuously like despairing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Continuously. Um, one thing I wanted to connect on, though, you jumped you jumped a little ahead, but that's good though yeah. because it's a good segue because. You said that there are it's surprising for a lot of liberals, right, uh, to understand that there are Nazis that don't like Trump. Right. right yeah. To link it back to the 80s, um, this discontent with the state and with the mainstream Republican Party, the mainstream right sort of seemed to reach this critical mass with Reagan because sure. there, there was this, you know, right wing revolution. Right. Where, again, Reagan was able to cast a big enough tent to even get some Democrats. Right. Um, you know, some right. some moderate liberals, right? But especially, I guess, at the zenith of the Cold War, these French groups and these radicals that, you know, believe in this Reagan revolution, that, you know, the state was going to use its power, right, to enact, like, their ideals, their goals, they became disappointed, right? Right. Well, and, and there's there's always that kind of, again, that kind of push-pull. I mean, again, we're ju- jumping back to Vietnam, you know, in the aftermath of Vietnam, you start to see, uh, you know, 60s uh, radical le- leftist radical organizers doing things like tax protests. And that was a very, you know, kind of common um, thing that they were doing, like, don't pay your taxes, you're just funding the war, right? And uh, right wing groups, again, adopt that same tactic, only they start to kind of move off into kind of kind of larger farmlands, they start to do, um, you know, kind of isolationist groups, they start to do, um, you know, survivalist compounds, and that sort of thing. Um, and that's where, you know, they start to uh, build kind of local power that way. And they start to, uh, you know, organize in, in some ways in, in, in direct terror cells. Um, yeah. uh, what we see, again, in the aftermath of Vietnam, it is during uh, Vietnam that the, that the term Zog, and that is Zionist mm. occupied government, um, mm. starts to become uh, that that's when the term is coined. I don't remember. I don't have the exact document. But um, Zionist occupied government. This is you know essentially that there are a bunch of Jews who are running this war who won't let us win it or who sent us off to all die. And so the government itself becomes the enemy because it creates the the conditions that that sent so many so many young Americans. I mean you know setting aside the massacre of Cambodia and Vietnam and like like which obviously we should not. <laughs> but, we shouldn't dismiss. Yes, but yes. We shouldn't dismiss mm-hmm. that. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that, but to just to talk about the effect on the American soldier and the American psyche, you know, it's sending a bunch of like largely young white Americans, which is what these people care about. Not what I care about, but it is what they care about um, into the maw of machine gun fire. I mean, yeah. into this meaningless, you know, quagmire. And so um, in the aftermath, you get this kind of strong anti-government movement. And what does Reagan do? And what does the, uh, you know, the moral majority in the uh, in the late 70s um, after uh, during the Carter years, during this, uh, there was a there was a uh, collapse of uh, the dollar. There were, a lot of farms were uh, foreclosed upon due to kind of complicated socioeconomic situations. Uh, you have the the oil crisis. You have this kind of time in the 70s in which things are just going very badly, particularly if you're a white man on the edge of precarity, right? Like if you owned a farm in 1977, or if you worked on a farm. Worked in a factory even. Deindustrialization. Deindustrialization. All these kind of economic impacts definitely take their toll. You know, again, I don't want anyone to doubt my conviction here is that a white man working in a factory in 1977, losing his position, is in a better place than a effective sharecropper working in Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, like there, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not immune to the difference there. But often, what you find these kind of like fascist movements are built on people who have a kind of 
um, some some degree of economic privation. They have some degree yeah. of you know upper middle class, middle class. You know, they are doing okay in their lives, and then they find a precarity because of um, usually some kind of um, macroeconomic factor or uh, you know political policy or whatever. And then someone comes along and goes, "Well, it's not capitalism that's at fault. It's yeah. the bankers, the Ju- the Jews, yes. right? or it's immigrants, or it's that black person who will work for less, or it's you know, et cetera, et cetera." And so that's where these movements, that's where they get, that's where they drive their engagement. Right. And so what Reagan does is he takes these, these large groups of people who are disaffected with the system and then gives them the same kinds of language about kind of the problems of government, but then puts that into a kind of mainstream political program and also is able to uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge in a way that even like the chamber of commerce types liked and because suddenly He's saying to these this kind of mass of voters, we know what the problem with, you know, big government is your problem. I am anti-government. But then what does he do ultimately? He's ultimately giving tax cuts and deregulation to um, the capitalist class, right? And uh, again, you can see that again, Trump, the same thing, you know. <laughs> you yeah. See, yeah. You know, Trump kind of gets into office on like their murderers and rapists. And then like, what does he do? Tax cuts for billionaires. Exactly. Uh, you know, and so, and so the... The disaffection of the far right by the kind of mainstream political figures in which they gave their their hopes to some degree is part of what drives um, these kind of cycles of, of violence and these cycles of white power and white supremacy. I, I want to underscore that point, especially for the audience. Right. You know, as as leftists, I don't think it can be obviously overstated how the economy plays into, you know, people's not only not only their personal hopes and dreams, but the way that they relate with other human beings who they see as an enemy potentially, or who they see as an ally. And when you were talking about that term Zog, um, Zionist occupied government, um, I was thinking that, well, this is a time during the eighties where like, I guess like the meme or the caricature is like, you know, cocaine fueled wall street. You know what I mean? There's like this, this excess, luxurious excess. And I'm thinking that people who have come back from the Vietnam war, people who, you know, are returning home to farms that have been sold or bought, or they're returning to cities that have um, become deindustrialized as capital flees, right, to other countries that, of course, and obviously I'm not saying this again, this is a, you know, uh, disclaimer, <laughs> this, 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 uh, this uh, trope, right, this racist anti-Semitic trope, right, of, well, the bankers, right, the Jews are right. the bankers, and they're the right. ones at fault, right? Like there's all this excess in this country, you know, at a time when like mass consumerism, mass production has been, you know, like accelerated by technology. And none of these people are enjoying like reaping the benefits of that. Right. And they're pointing their finger and, you know, wink, 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 nudge, nudge by Reagan as well, who isn't explicit again. He's, you know, he's president. He's a mainstream Republican. But he's still sort of, again, dog whistling, right, to these people while also incredibly disappointing them and making them more and more alienated and angry. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, the 80s were a good time for a lot of people, for a lot of white people, particularly, uh, you know, upper, upper middle class, upper class white people in America. But uh, we also see, I mean, kind of culturally. Uh, a, a a kind of rising uh, kind of kind of thought for for more working class. I mean, even in like sitcoms. I mean, if you think about mm. like Roseanne yeah. was on around the 
this time. And so there is, there is kind of more of an interest in, in people of, of more, you know, I, again, I hate using working class and upper class in this way, but hopefully yeah. you can understand that we can, we can yeah. use it in the Marxian way or we can use it in the traditional way, yeah. um, you know, but, uh, but, but a kind of more working class, a little bit lower class, uh, a schlubbier existence starts to be something that is, there is a response even within the culture. And of course that's Hollywood. That's, you know, kind of, kind of well-meaning liberals uh, attempting to, um, capture something, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of a different phenomenon, but ultimately one of the things that we, that we have to kind of grapple with, one of the complexities here is that, you know, cultural factors and there's a push pull between cultural factors and economic factors and these kind of, kind of far right movements. And, um, that, uh, sometimes what we're seeing are like third or fourth order effects from some, uh, you know, kind of cultural moment from 20 years ago, in some cases that actually sort of becomes the, the kind of inciting incident. You know, but but I think one of the things that you see with with this kind of mainstreaming of these ideas and this kind of like kind of anti-government um, kind of kind of libertarian ethos um, is the um, is the kind of uh, a uh, sorry I'm trying to put my words together here a uh, a discounting of the kind of like lived economic reality of again that kind of lower lower class you know white person um, living in some of these communities and that you know Wall Street's going well but it, it still doesn't bring the farms back it still doesn't do all the other thing, and so what? What is what? What is there but the uh, uh, the uh, the moral majority and uh, Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and the, and the rise of this this kind of Christo fascist movement to sell them on uh, this uh, kind of kind of a more quote unquote moral values and this this kind of Christian values kind kind of conservatism, um, and you know abortion becomes the big issue. It becomes the hot button issue. I mean, one of the things that. Um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are not aware of is that in 1976, or, you know, kind of right after the Roe v. Wade decision, like in the late 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention did not have an official policy about abortion. They considered it to be a matter of personal conviction and personal faith. They did not put out a kind of official position about like, this is how we feel about abortion. By 1980, that's completely switched. They are like, like they use abortion not as a, it's not like a bit of religious conviction. It becomes a bit of like a way of ensuring political power. And of course, this is all also part of the kind of longer terms effects of the Southern strategy. And you need to get a historian of this period on to really kind of talk about the details. But like all of this plays into the 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 toxic mix that these kind of far right accelerationist again don't like the term, but well, you know, the kind of the far right extreme figures are are marinating in in this period. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to I think like because this is like going to be a dense conversation and one of the things I kind of want to uh, highlight at the end, too, are the characteristics of the far right. But but one, I think, and the first and foremost that people need to understand is that I know it sounds obvious, but reaction is literally a reaction, a response to any sort of progressive or emancipatory um, any sort of those agendas, right, that advance the cause, right, the well-being, right, of, you know, our particular group of people, right? So, again, the 70s, you know, Nixon, this was a backlash to the civil rights movement, right? Right. Um, I think the 80s as well, Reagan, again, this is a backlash to sort of this counterculture movement that's been bubbling for like 20 years prior, right? But on the far right, it's not, it's not just a reaction. It's almost like a hyper-exaggerated reaction, not only to, you know, creeping liberalism or progressivism, but also to a mainstream right that is clearly not doing enough, right? Right. To stop this socialist communist takeover, right? Right. 
<laughs> and of course, there are also divisions within the right. I mean, around this time period, you start to see, I mean, I mentioned the libertarians, which are this kind of kind of uh, weird offshoot thing that sort of exists. It, it becomes a, a kind of organized movement in the, um, I believe in the early 70s is when you really start to see kind of libertarianism as a kind of an organized political philosophy. And it largely is a creation by, um, you know, elite, uh, by corporate elites, by business elites. And the John um, Birch Society, too. I think the, this is right, like the, John, the, the John kind Birch of beginning Society's, of that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, again, a lot of these players, I mean, because we're talking about, we're also, one of the reasons for the density is that we're talking about a fairly short history in which many of these people are still alive today. Yeah. But uh, have gone back and forth between like multiple, you know, they, they, they're always kind of, they're always looking for a kind of a, syncretic approach to uh to achieving power by um you know kind of building some some coalition around a particular kind of set of ideas and libertarianism becomes that that sort of thing it, it, ultimately it's 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 selling the, the kind of chamber of commerce types are selling a, ver a vision of freedom to quote-unquote working class individuals like oh you get to have your drugs and your low taxes and you can have gay sex if you want to and it's all going to be great but ultimately the effect of it is not all of that the effect of it is we're going to deregulate all our industries and we're going to poison your waters and do all exactly, exactly. That, that, that's ultimately what libertarianism has always been um but also um and i think this is an essential thing that i think gets under commented on and i hope i hope to one day talk to the know your enemy guys about this because it's a, it's a really important di division but the uh, paleoconservative neoconservative division in um in the republican party and in conservative politics in the 80s and 90s becomes a, a kind of a really important uh thing that leads to this kind of modern resurgence of the alt-right and of you know this kind of white nationalism today and that is you know where the neoconservative position like these are kind of like former new left types who have a vision for a kind of an American global dominance built around, uh, you know, kind of controlling the oil industry and defeating communism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The paleoconservative types are people who believe in a, in a kind of a, a, uh, a vision of a more restrained isolationist foreign policy alongside a, a deeply con socially conservative um, viewpoint. So mm. they see themselves as and the paleoconservatives, like the money, like the, the military industrial complex essentially feeds the neoconservatives and the neoconservatives become ascendant within the Republican Party, particularly within, you know, the Poppy Bush and then later much more so in the George W. Bush era, the neoconservatives become this kind of the, the major wing of the uh, of the Republican Party for, again, a variety, a complex variety of vision, uh, largely based around the uh, the end of the Cold War is, is kind of an, an important uh, inflection point there. But um the paleoconservative position, um, that one was uh, was named by this guy, Paul Gottfried, who then later on gets to uh, coin the term alternative right. Holy one shit. of the things, yeah, one of the things that uh, was noticed by the paleocons in the 80s was that uh, a whole lot of the neocons were Jewish. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so so a kind of like anti-Semitic uh, ring kind of goes along that whole thing. And this, again, goes into kind of feeding this uh, resentment among the paleocons because they are on the outside of the large funding apparatus. They are, they are part of the conservative movement, but they're kind of writing in magazines that fewer people are reading. Yeah. They're really not kind of part of the major conversation. Um, Pat Buchanan becomes a major figure here, um, kind of the godfather of the alt-right in a lot of ways. Or, you know, he writes Death of the West and he writes you know, uh, Churchill's Unnecessary War, um, which are, you know, basically Nazi books with serial numbers filed off. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cut off the edges. These are, these are just straight up like Hitler was a great guy. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> I'm not saying the Holocaust was good, but like, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Holocaust, you know yeah. Hitler did some nice things. Yeah. Really? 
we should have fought on the other side of that war. The Soviets were the much bigger danger. You know, why? Well, you know, what what was the ethnicity of the upper level Soviets? And uh, yeah, and you know, and uh, sorry, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of no, uh, joking no, about that, but there's a real there's a reality to that. I mean, I've got a couple of Pat Buchanan books here on my bookshelf. I could point you to passages, believe me, where it sounds you know very much like you know kind of an overt uh, Nazi apologia. Again, part of this history, there is a long and dedicated history of the right, of even the mainstream right, that again feeds these ideas kind of go back and forth between, you know, a kind of this kind of fairly mainstream Republican figure. You know, mm. Pat Buchanan was on the McLaughlin group every week. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he's yeah. he's a major figure. Um, and these kind of, you know, the the extremist, you know, far right isolationist types, right? Yeah. Um, another great book, Dave Nywart's The Eliminationist. I recommend this very regularly. It's from 2009, I believe. And he tracks the, you know, and, and Dave, Dave is a friend of mine, you know, he's been on the show a couple of times. He is a liberal, but he knows that he's been covering the far right in the Pacific Northwest since 1988. There is no one, few people alive know as much as this man does about, about these movements. And uh, he is, um, he is very much, uh, he talks about these kind of far right figures and the kind of the far right language and the way that that feeds into kind of ma mainstream Republican rhetoric. And he's writing this like right at the birth of the kind of the alt right in 2009. And although he's not using, he's not looking at those particular groups, but I mean, it's it's important to note that this um, this this didn't begin four or five years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that it's all fed by a kind of this this kind of right wing media apparatus. I mean, we haven't even mentioned like Fox News, oh yeah, and Rush Limbaugh, and these and these kind of radio networks and the way that the this kind of alternate you know kind of source of information and this kind of um, with a kind of built in conspiracism around like the radical left is out there electing Joe Biden sort of thing. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. It, it itself is a reaction socialist to Bill Clinton. Exactly. And ultimately you can't trust the liberal culture. You can't trust these liberal sources that you can only trust us in this kind of like right wing media. And, you know, Fox news bills itself as, you know, we're fair and balanced at CNN who are these kind of far left radical left communist types. Right. Um, and then that only allows for further right groups to flank them on the right and say, oh no, and now we're the right wing. Yeah. And so like over time, you just get this kind of ratcheting further and further right. Yeah, yeah. But so before, that's, that's actually like the media space is a good point. And that's like kind of where I want to talk about um, in the 90s with like, you know, the internet and message boards. But also one thing before we uh, jump off the 80s, one thing that I do want to mention is reading uh, Bring the War Home. One thing that amazed me was the use of militia groups like these white power militia groups to facilitate covert action in Latin America during like the Cold War. Right. Yep. And the fact that you had Vietnam vets who had practical training right in that war who were then contracted, as far as I understand in the book, and this blew my fucking mind, who were contracted by like the US government to actually fight in not just Latin America, but places like South Africa as well, yep. right? Like they would go, well, I didn't say they were contracted by the US government, but they would go and fight on behalf right. of the South African, like apartheid government. Yeah, I mean, um, Soldier of Fortune magazine is founded, you know, by some of these figures. And this becomes a, a kind of major, I mean, it's almost a joke these days, you know, so it becomes like a, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, King of the Hill, you know, the uh, the gun club and their, their Soldier of Fortune becomes a, a bit of fun. But at the same time, uh, like this was this was a serious kind of recruiting ground. And you did see not necessarily like the U.S. government itself sort of like funding people directly. At least I'm not I don't know. Maybe there's a little bit of that going on. I can't I can't remember what was in Bring the War Home and what wasn't. It's been a little while since I read it. But um, you certainly see these kind of independent operators who are acting 
in their eyes as part of sort of the U.S. imperial project and are trying to kind of do the same thing that we were trying to do in Vietnam and doing it on a smaller scale and, and doing the things that, that the U.S. government was absolutely doing in Latin America around the same time and in South Africa and in um, various other places. And they saw themselves as being part of that same project. They were just sort of, a, you know, uh, enthusiastic amateurs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we volunteer. They're the library volunteers, but instead it's, They're like uh, it's, Middle it's toppling governments and, you know, and in uh, South America. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think that um, should be understood is that, you know, again, coming off of the end of the Vietnam War and this growing militia movement, it's like the idea that you had this surplus, right, of like militia members. And I can't give exact numbers. I mean, um, right. this is why I like, you know, folks, again, point folks to this book, because Kathleen Blue does actually bring up um, precise numbers from records, right, of people that subscribe to the magazine or even went off and fight. But you had this surplus of like militia members who were then used to continue fighting. I mean, because they couldn't achieve what they wanted at home yet, they went off to other countries to actually fight. And it just kind of like is is to me sort of the culmination. I mean, not yet the culmination, fortunately, but it's leading up to the culmination of this outgrowth of these militia movements and this energy that has to be displaced in you know the the continuation of the american imperial project yep. and that that just blew my mind like reading that oh yeah no definitely and and the fact that you know they bring their their skills and they bring this kind of they, they again they see themselves as part of this project and then when that kind of ultimately fails and when this this kind of era ends um they they come home uh, and they decide to sort of enact that same that same kind of fervor uh, on the native population on the on the on the actual US population um and uh you know that's i mean that's the title bring the war home that's that's a kind of that, that's that's a central metaphor um and and one of the uh, you know kind of one of the truisms about you know about fascism is it's imperialism drawn inward instead of the force of the state being to uh, economically and socially uh, oppress uh, people in other in other lands you you uh, use it against your internal population it's like inverse colonization colonialism you know <laughs> oh absolutely and i mean you know what what do we do you know something that i try to think about a lot something that i try to keep in mind is the uh, kind of the realities of, of this is part of normal this, mm -hmm. this is what we consider normal not something that is that is extreme or explicit the that the u.s government policy towards um you know people from central and south america from mexico down south um has as has been for since since the late 40s since the since the time of the beginning of the white power movement in the United States has been uh, one of um, horrifying oppression. It's been one of effective slavery and that the uh, what fruit growers in the United States, what agribusiness wants is they want there to be kind of stiff penalties for illegal immigration. They want immigration to remain difficult, but they want there to be economic incentives for uh, people to come over the border anyway. Because that means that they exist in this kind of shadow slave caste, um, and that's exactly and that's and this is this is this is you know the tomato that I ate for dinner tonight, <laughs> you know, was picked by someone who lives in that in that kind of squalor who is who is an effective slave, and you know it's not our, our us choosing like liberal consumer choices does not make that end right, you know, but the reality of you know if you are a racist if you are a anti-immigrant person and you believe in this kind of ideology and you believe in the kind of the vision that uh, that the politicians are telling you that you know immigrants are bringing rape and they're bringing crime and they're you know and they shouldn't be here and we are going to build a wall twenty feet high et cetera et cetera and you believe in that vision and then you see well there are still brown people all around me and why are there how is this happening if it's if it's still happening despite the fact that we have our guy in charge what is it doing here and they don't see the kind of the economic reality and that is they've been lied to by their political leader. 
years and that the immigrants are a scapegoat to gain political power. But ultimately, because of the economic class interests, there is a, a desire for these people to still be here, you know? Exactly. And then if I call them out on that, because they end up in my DMs, they end up in my, if I call them out on, on I don't speak German, then I get them making fun of me and going like, you know, you don't understand. It's just like, there's, there's, yeah. how can you, how can you not understand that, that the, they think I'm lying to them because like I'm seeing through the lies that their leaders are giving them. Yeah. They, they sort of believe in this sort of, um, the liberal pieties they believe that those liberal pieties have like real power and they have real value that they represent something real in sort of our political leaders uh beliefs and what their political leaders actually want to do when if you judge their political leaders based on what they actually do as opposed and then you you look at the kind of systemic material realities then it's very hard to become a fascist in that yeah. sense right yeah. you know yeah I, I, towards the end because i i want to i'm going to bring this up towards the end but i do want to point it out like that you know, there's there's a difference between being a materialist, right, and or like historical materialist, and looking at material resources, looking at all of history as a culmination of, you know, the contestation of uh, of material resources, right, um, mm-hmm. and thus power, right, political power, right, between like you know classes of people, like a ruling class and a working class. And then there's a difference between being in this binary of like anti-establishment sentiments yeah. where, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit with this sort of, I mean, I hate this term, but what people are calling this red brown alliance where, you know, you have notable figures like, thank God, who are just on the online left, you know, and in the left leftist media sphere, but that are trying to either entertain or court or have the left, you know, the nascent leftist movement in this country since Bernie, like ally with fascists, like we'll, we'll talk about that. But that stems yeah. from not having a materialist perspective because it's not just about the elites. Right. Well, and, and elites is ultimately, I mean, what is what does that mean? Exactly. You know, it's kind of a cultural signifier without without meaning. And ultimately, I mean, again, it's very easily kind of encoded as again, the juice, you know, which, which gets into, you know, that exact, you know, kind of idea. And so, again, again, the kind of the liberal language that we that we see kind of used, that we see very commonly used, even among, you know, kind of the soft social Democrats and Democratic Socialists, the DSA, you know, that we see that, that kind of language used. It's actually, if it's not based in a kind of materialism, if it's not based in kind of a a real understanding of the not strictly economic, but the socioeconomic forces that have led to this historical moment. If it's not built on a kind of reality of history isn't isn't past, it's like physics, it's a thing that we all live inside, then ultimately we're gonna lose the argument to the fascists yeah. because the fascists are offering a shortcut. Uh, so again, I'm jumping ahead, but this is uh, something that I've had on my mind very much lately, <laughs> particularly since uh, the inauguration. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's let's before before we get into that, because I really want to get into that with you at the end. Um, let's let's kind of cover the 90s a bit. And I guess we can like kind of mesh the 90s and like, you know, the 2000s and whatnot, because it seems like it's been this like, you know, long 30 year kind of period. You know what I mean? In right. this movement that's been obviously getting worse. But it I guess the, the crux of it for me is the the actualization of the the goals that have been being presented by these militia groups right um and you know this also i guess has to do with like the internet and it, there being an easy easier way for like anonymous figure cells essentially right um these individual small individual groups or even individuals themselves right 
to uh, go on and commit like, you know, atrocities like Timothy McVeigh, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing. You really can't overstate the importance of the Oklahoma City bombing in terms of like this history either. Before we get to that, then I want to ask you, because I don't know shit about Ruby Ridge. Okay. And I kind of want to ask you about that and then sort of which happens like I think a couple years later, Oklahoma City bombing and Ruby Ridge has always seemed to me, I mean, in the minds of maybe, you know, more liberal minded people or normies, right? Like surprising, but also like some symbol of defeat, right? right? Like, oh, there was this enemy, you know, that was like here in our society, like this domestic enemy this whole time that I didn't know about. But clearly, like, you know, these cops went in and a couple people died and that's unfortunate. But like, that's it. Right. And then the Oklahoma City bombing happens a couple of years later. So can you talk a little bit about maybe <laughs> both of them? together? Yeah, a little, yeah, a little no, bit. Yeah. No, this is this is like a four hour conversation. You know, yeah, this is going yeah. to be at two. This is a big this ass. Is the, this is the very quick uh, version of this. But uh, during the course of the 80s, you see an increasing uh, kind of survivalist movement, increasing, uh, you know, we have the Aryan Nations compound. Uh, out in Idaho, you see a kind of a large uh, contingent, lots of these groups out in uh, various places, Elohim City, uh, which I believe is in Missouri. Uh, I could be mistaken. I don't have the, the like, all the things in, in my head. Uh, you see uh, kind of proto-terrorist organizations like The Order, um, who murdered Alan Berg, the the, the radio um, presenter in the West. He was Jewish, right? He was, was Jewish, it? yes. Um, and uh, he, was, he would actively uh, mock uh, the kind of Klan members and the Nazis who would call him up on his radio show. Um, he was a very contentious figure, and then one of the members of the order murdered him. Um, it becomes the uh, the basis of the Oliver Stone film Talk Radio. If you've uh, never seen that, it's oh, sure. I've never seen that. Um, and uh, this this is this is again one of those inflection points. But um, you see this kind of increasing kind of militarization, and then in the aftermath of the Berg shooting, in the aftermath of, of that murder, and several other. Uh, you know, kind of violent actions of that time and kind of the rise of the skinhead movement um, and these survivalist compounds, the, the feds start to take a, a notice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, well, uh, no no need to stand the FBI here, but like what happens is when uh, these kind of far-right figures start to get too violent, when they start to interfere with the, uh, with the actions of the federal government, when they start to kind of throw um, sand in the, in the gears, uh, they, start to, they start to notice. <laughs> Um, and particularly when they start to kill people, because people tend to notice when uh, yeah. get murdered, um, you know, and not not by official, not by official people, you know, like if it's yeah. a cop, it's like, oh, you know, that's fine. We've got paperwork for that. Yes. State sanctioned yeah. violence is fine. It's normal. Right. It's, it's, well, and, and they get to uh, make a big show of kind of going after these guys as a way of proving their kind of bona fides. And they're like, we are actually a good organization working on behalf of minorities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's a kind of a PR element to all this. Again, these things get complicated. But um, so there's a kind of a rising antipathy in between these kind of militia guys and these kind of far right white power guys and the FBI and kind of the alphabet soup agencies um, over the course of the 80s and the early 90s. Um, Randy Weaver was someone who uh, he is he he lived on the top of Ruby Ridge, which is a uh, uh, a mountain. It's uh, I believe only like 20 minutes from the Canadian border. It's very close to to the Canadian border. It's very very isolated. Um, and there is a, a white power compound near there. Um, and uh, there aren't a whole lot of people in uh, Ruby Ridge. And so if you're going to do your socializing, you're probably going to hang out with the Klan guys, with the Nazis. And there are uh, conflicting accounts. I think people have, like, I think legitimate differences of opinion of exactly how far along that path Randy Weaver was, like, as a person. 
in terms of what like was he actually a Nazi or not? Uh, I'm not here to kind of make a judgment on that, uh, you know. But he was certainly hanging out with Nazis, and I think he believed in he at least had some light, you know, white power beliefs. I mean, and uh, believe he's Christian identity, although even that gets kind of disputed in places. So anyway, uh, Randy Weaver's leaving on top of this mountain. Um, the feds decide they want to uh, use Randy Weaver to uh, get at uh, some of his friends who they think are actually dangerous. That they don't think Randy Weaver is personally going to kind of commit a terrorist attack, but they think some of his buddies who are kind of further along that ideological ideological spectrum might. And they know that Randy Weaver has a family. Um, and so they decide to, they entrap Weaver. Um, and I think this is fairly, well, I'll put an allegedly over a lot of this stuff because, you know, we don't want to get sued here, but you know, this history is fairly uncontested at this point. Um, they essentially entrap Randy Weaver. They, uh, a federal agent goes to him and says, Hey, will you soft this? Uh, will you soft this shotgun? I forget exactly what the details were, but they wanted him to modify a weapon in an illegal way. And Randy Weaver needs a little bit of money. He's like, yeah, sure. I'll take the 200 bucks or whatever. I'll go take care of that for you. Then they start coming for him. There's a back and forth. I forget the exact history, but essentially they, they, uh, serve a warrant. He doesn't show up for the warrant. Uh, they have to send out some marshals after him, and then it becomes a standoff. And because the feds just can't back down from this, it becomes this kind of multi-day standoff. Uh, in the standoff, um, Weaver's wife and his young, I believe his young son, are killed in, in as part of this. And it becomes this major kind of media story around the country, but particularly among the far right, because there are there is this kind of group, this communications network of people on the far right who literally like show up <laughs> to Ruby Ridge to sell their wares, to, show, to sell their, uh, their, their pamphlets, to sell guns and, and do all kinds of things. So um, later on, this is exacerbated by Waco. Um, Waco becomes another one of these kind of major events. Now, the Waco, the Branch Davidians are not uh, white supremacists. They were a religious group. They had their own kind of kooky beliefs about God, but they do not fit into this kind of white power schema. But they were certainly anti-government. And um, again, there's a lot of kind of dispute there about exactly what the feds did. Um, but in the aftermath of that, there is this belief, maybe or maybe not justified, that the uh, that the federal government actually burned many, many children and the people who were inside of that Waco compound with David Koresh, they, they literally burned these children alive. Jesus um, yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> I am not certain what the epistemic status of that is, um, personally. But anyway, um, Timothy McVeigh was actually there selling literature. He was selling, I believe he was selling copies of the Turner Diaries oh, at God. Waco. Right. Um, so he witnesses that himself. Um, and then going back to echoes of Vietnam, Timothy McVeigh uh, had served during the first Gulf War and um, kind of comes to have similar beliefs about the U.S. government that uh, the kind of the, the people in the aftermath of uh, Vietnam had about, you know, the, the U.S. government is just a bunch of bullies. They're out there. Why aren't we beating up on this poor country? Why are we doing this? And this kind of like he sees war and he sees how useless it is. And he starts blaming his country for sending him into that um, and sees the U.S. government as being kind of the great evil. And um, there's some justification for that, you know, no question, you know, if we're talking about the Gulf War, you didn't even live to see the war in Iraq, the the the, the big one. So, you know, who knows? I'm um, at a high angle, but just taking it in a completely different direction. Right, right. right. Like he, he sees that, but instead of seeing it as, oh, maybe the military industrial complex is, you know, kind of fundamentally a way of exerting economic control over the rest of the world. And maybe American empire is 
is bad, but you know, he doesn't see it that way. He starts to see it as, you know, um, he pulls it into this, you know, kind of, again, we don't know exactly. I don't think Tim McVeigh was kind of an explicitly white power guy. He was more of a kind of more traditional anti-government guy. I'm sure he had some, uh, some kind of white power beliefs, but, uh, you know, there are, um, records of him kind of getting along with, uh, African-American members of his unit. Um, I, you know, it, these things get messy, right? So, you know, I'm not here to, again, make the statement one or the other, but he, he blows up the Murrah building, um, in 1995 as his, as his protest, <laughs> you know, as his act of terrorism kills 168 people, I think 14 children. Um, and, um, in the aftermath of this, the U S government, and this is, this is where it kind of bring the war home ends. It ends on the McVeigh bombing and the political aftermath of that. Um, there is really good evidence that McVeigh did not build that bomb um, there were a lot of leads that never really got tracked down, but the government was very happy in the aftermath of Ruby Ridge and Waco and some other incidents of that type, um, that, um, they, they needed to kind of close the book on this and, uh, just kind of blame the lone wolf. And this is where kind of the lone wolf uh, kind of narrative comes from. Is it Timothy McVeigh, he was just one guy. He was out there. He gave his anger at the government. He committed, um, this, this huge act of violence and it's a terrible thing. But ultimately, um, he's just one guy. There's no he's not connected to any kind of groups. And they really kind of like step off of really going after these um, kind of survivalist groups in, in a real way. Um, there's also kind of a natural uh, decline as a lot of these kind of older guys are just getting older and they start to die off or they start to retire. Or they sell their stuff or they get sued by um, in civil suit by the ACLU and some other organizations. Again, long, long history there. <laughs> um, but um what you see also is that during the 90s, the Republican Party, you could see you know, kind of Southern Republicans and libertarian types, kind of small government types, um, being kind of playing footsie with some of these these far right groups and some of these militia groups. Um, the Ron Paul racist newsletter scandal, if you remember that from you know uh, years ago, um, those newsletters sound very much like white power newsletters. Again, with the serial numbers filed off, um, and there's uh, pretty good evidence that the person who actually wrote those newsletters was a uh, white power guy himself. Uh, just again, kind of you know sliding in under the radar. Um, nobody's actually confirmed exactly who wrote those newsletters, but um, there are some theories out there. Um, let's say so. What you see is this kind of decrease in importance of the militia movement. They really have to start kind of cleaning up their act. They really have to kind of behave above board because they know that the feds are going to kind of come after them, but not as a movement. So um, you start to see kind of the rise of the Oath, Oath Keepers. You see the rise of the third, the three percenters. It kind of all goes online and it becomes, you know, this kind of old guys hanging out in survivalist gear, shooting guns on weekends and who cares? Right? I mean, you know, it kind of it kind of becomes that sort of thing. Um, but again, in part, as George W. Bush gains power in 2000, just a few years after the Oklahoma City bombing, um, a lot of these guys start to... Uh, kind of weasel their way into some kind of, you know, kind of Bush supporting, you know, when Bush is in power and he's kind of pushing this right wing agenda, he's pushing this kind of like Christian conservatism. He's crushing, he's pushing this, this war in Iraq and this kind of crusade language. Um, they feel like they're in power. They feel like they don't really need, they, they can support Bush, right? Like they can, they can be that. They don't have to stand against the, the power structure when they feel that the power structure is doing ultimately the thing that they want. Yeah. One, one thing, one thing I want to touch on, God, yo, that was great. Yes. That was like a great, concise, <laughs> like, sweeping. And I was like kind of making notes because there's one thing I want to mention. I promised them, I promised them like, well, I didn't promise, but I said like, I kind of wanted to cover, you know, characteristics of the far right. And one of them, I was like, well, it sounds obvious, but all right wing like movements, it's a reaction, right, to any sort of progressive policy. And the second one that you kind of underscored, and this is exclusive to the far right, is um the idea of these sleeper cells, right? Right. 
as after Ruby Ridge, you know, um, after Waco, after the Oklahoma City bombing, these groups realize that because they are in the public spotlight, that they cannot act as, you know, as a, as a mass movement, I guess, as they wish they could have, right, or wanted to in the 70s and the 80s, right? right. But that they have to sort of become atomized sleeper cells or atomized organizations where only one individual like Timothy McVeigh is remembered, right. right? And not the organization that he was a member of, right. where we start to sort of just individualize this movement, which takes away from the fact that, no, it's not just one dude out in the woods that thinks like that, man. Like there's a whole like network, which, and you kind of alluded to it too, that is facilitated through the internet, right? right? right. Um, perfect segue as like you see a decline, I guess, in publications and newsletters, you see a rise in, you know, anonymous message boards, right? Yeah, we just did, I just did episode 79 of I Don't Speak German is all about the earliest uh, computer networks, literally dial up BBS systems in the early 80s, in the mid 80s, um, starting about 1983. Um, and we use that through uh, the lens of um, Tom Metzger's activities and uh, Tom Metzger's I'm not even like, let's just, let's just move on. Just go listen to episode 79. I just talked yeah, about this. I'll leave, it, I'll leave it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. No, please. The, everything that we've touched on, I've done like a whole episode about like. Oh, numerous episodes. In the show notes, I'll like link the pod and just go back and listen to the backlogs and you will, you'll, you'll get what we've talked about in like, you know, uh, a little over an hour uh, over like 16, 20 hours. It'll be, it'll be very informative and depressing as well. Right. Um, it's great. Um, and this is one that's going to be a little broad, but this is where we can kind of bounce around and bounce back and forth, like where we are now, right? And I just did an episode on um, The Society of the Spectacle, which is a book I'm I'm obsessed with, uh, with the folks from QAnon Anonymous, right? So we kind of talked about this a little bit too, but the internet seems to be this instrument of shared perception, mm -hmm. right? We're all online looking at the same viral videos, seeing the same news, but then there are like these sub-spectacles, like these dark corners of the internet where the, this movement, this white power movement has sort of exploded. And I think, especially during Trump, I mean, you know, if Obama was the first like, you know, Facebook president, then Trump was like the first 4chan president. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, if you if you'll have me again sometime, I'd love to come back and talk about the the alt-right specifically. Yeah. Uh, because there's a really complicated involved history there. Um, that is that is fascinating. And well, like one day I'm planning to write a book one of these days, and like the birth of the alt-right, like what exactly kind of led to that is is kind of the the like the the, the the central thesis of the book, like kind of the rise and fall of the thing that we call the alt-right. Um, it's a fascinating story and I've been tracking it in real time anyway. Um, so I hope that we, I hope that we can do this again sometime and we can, we can get into some of that detail. Oh, we will. Oh, we will. And let me, let me interject. Um, actually, yeah, we should, I should have you come back. This could be a whole like little mini series sure. on just like, it's all the time of monsters. Like these are the monsters, <laughs> right. the most important monsters you should be paying attention to. But it seems like, you know, the alt-right was powerful for the first two years. I mean, not powerful, but at least in people's minds, sure. right? I mean, they had their guy in the White House, right? But all they were doing was making memes, right? Which has which has a power of its own, right? Which has a power of its own because QAnon did the same thing, except their batshit crazy worldview was manifested and actualized by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Sure, yeah. So we, I feel like we're, and especially since, I mean, God, I'm, I'm covering so many things, but especially since January 6th, right? And the Capitol siege, we're in this weird liminal space now where I feel like the right, the, the power, white power movement, right? Or whatever it's called now. It's definitely not alt-right. And I don't even think it's just QAnon. That's their 
most visible kind of expressed form, right? Well, and QAnon isn't really, I mean, I wouldn't argue that QAnon was ever really a part of the alt-right. It's a different sort of thing. You know? Yeah, it's a different yeah. sort of thing. Of course, it is a different sort of thing. But you, you are seeing this coalition between conspiracy theory groups like QAnon, which are not explicitly like white power groups, but then you are seeing the militia groups. And it's it's what what is happening right now? Well, there's a Where's there's a Trump? there's a division between what I what I often on IDSG kind of call it kind of implicitly white supremacist and explicitly white supremacist or white power groups, you know. And uh, I use white supremacy in the very kind of systemic term in the sense of you know like systems which inadvertently or inadvertently um, work for the advantage of of white people, socially constructed white people categories over um, other classes of people. And so uh, for me, white supremacy is you know like <laughs> language universities and redlining and you know all the you know all the all the thing like the history of america of you know a native american genocide um the fact that i live in this air-conditioned house instead of having to till fields for a living you know like it's all part of the white supremacist system right um you know so uh white nationalists i use to refer to kind of explicit groups that are are individuals that believe in some version of kind of the creation of an all-white ethno state that's that's a fairly straightforward white nationalist definition and then white we're talking about default you know versus like a uh, sort of like desire to actualize right 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 you know something that isn't just the default it goes a little bit further than that right, where, where it is about an, kind of an explicit exclusion yes and that sometimes takes the form of okay we're going to build our own little town and keep black people out or keep people of color out and then sometimes it comes in the form of we want to create an uh, you know an all-white ethno state across the entire north american continent and sometimes that goes to worldwide non-white genocide um, some of these yeah. figures do start to kind of the day of the rope is they would call well it. and the day of the rope is even not like that extreme i mean you've seen people like no just nuke africa no oh, jesus like, you know yeah no i mean it's um yeah there's a <laughs> let's just let's just leave that aside for now because that's a whole other thing you know i've done it's gonna get dark <laughs> go go look at episode 52 which is called genocide and the right stuff and i demonstrate that quite ably because the people at the right stuff were lying about me and I decided I had to demonstrate they were not because they are genocidal racists. No. So, you know, yeah. maniacs. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then in white power, which, you know, again, through Bellows language, we kind of used to describe the entire the, the entire kind of thrust of these kind of implicit, explicit white nationalists, white supremacists, you know, this, this kind of exertion of white power by individuals. Um, either as part of or or in in kind of like contradiction to the the established state. So you know that's that's sort of the way that I use the terms. You know, um, but yeah, the, uh, what I was kind of referring to is this kind of implicit versus explicit uh, white supremacy and white nationalism. And you know, there is this sort of sense in which the most of the militia groups are more implicit. They want low taxes. They want to be left alone. They want their kind of white picket fence and or their their compound or they want whatever. But it's not. It's about like sort of this like socially constructed whiteness in which certain types of non-white people are kind of allowed in the community who are allowed to be a part of it. So long as they sort of um, agree to a certain kind of society, a certain kind of order to the way the world works, which um, allows for this kind of like implicit whiteness to to maintain itself. It's a very tacit sort of like, you know, tenuous alliance. Like, okay, you can live in this neighborhood as long as you do X, Y, and Z and you're a good American. Like, it's like couched in right. sort of civic nationalism, you know? It, it definitely. As long as you kind of support this, uh, you know, the, this kind of low tax regime, as long as you support, 
you know, certain kinds of things, as long as you don't get too uppity. Exactly. Know, again, apologies, apologies for the language, but you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the thing, you know, um, the proud boys do the, do the exact same thing. You know, why did they put Enrico Tario? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I believe an Afro, an Afro Latino, uh, I believe that's his ethnic Somebody background. Told me that he wasn't and like posted, he posted a picture of him like before he got tanned, but I was like, dude, it doesn't even oh, okay. matter. Like, yeah. But, okay. it, that, well, they, they, they put him out there and there were, there were previous kind of quote unquote leaders of the proud boys who had this kind of, you know, and, and various other members of the proud boys who have this kind of like non-white ethnicity. And this, so they kind of put them up forward and they use this explicitly, you know, because they, they do the 14 words, but they replace white with Western. Yeah. We're not, <laughs> you know? we're not racist. We're not racist. just the Western kind. And then it's fine if you're a black person within uh, the proud boys, as long as you, you know, are not as long as you exhibit a a kind of a genuflection towards the greatness of Western white society. I'll ask you a question. I'll ask the audience a question if they don't know. Enrico uh, Enrico Tario apparently uh, he's been outed as a snitch as an informer. Yes. So let me ask you yeah. what these like you know these uh, these colorblind uh, proud boys are going to do and think of you know an Afro Cuban who turns out to be a snitch. I'm gonna ask you what. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're not going to be not, post-racial. Not going right? to be not going to be great fans. No, um, you know, and uh, and there and to be and to be absolutely clear, there are really obvious white nationalists who have formerly or are currently proud boys. Um, they exist within the ranks. They just kind of like hide their power level. Um, it, it's 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 pretty explicit. Um, there's a Telegram group called, called Proud Boys Uncensored in which there is an explicitly white nationalist Proud Boy out there kind of running this Telegram group. He seems to be unaffiliated with any of the larger Proud Boy organizations. Um, and that does sometimes get, uh, you know, kind of liberal journalists kind of go out there and quote it and go like, look, the Proud Boys are actually white supremacists. And it's like that guy, they don't, the other Proud Boys don't like him very much. Exactly. Um, and that's, that's not to say there isn't a racist component to the Proud Boys, but it's just <laughs> not that easy. Loud, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not that easy. Sometimes, you know, it actually helps to, speak to somebody who's been watching for a while anyway uh that's actually a perfect segue sort of because you know on the left i don't the left isn't i mean and sometimes they will because i've heard leftists say things like online you know these are people that fortunately are not in a position of political power because you know and i'm not going to say any names but these people are i will say one name that you all know jimmy Dore. but i mean some of these other people are just fucking remoras latching on to this idiotic whale you know who doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about but yeah, I did see some people say that, oh, well, during the uprisings over the summer, there were Proud Boys who were actually there marching with BLM protesters. So it's kind of like this almost this inverse of the Proud. It's not really even inverse. It's like the Proud Boys saying, well, we have black members. And then you have like these so-called leftists saying, well, they're protecting out there, like marching for black lives. Right. Like maybe we should ally with those people. And that's kind of what I wanted to end off on, because you guys have sure. I'll link this too. I'm going to link like every fucking episode you guys have ever done by the end by the end of this. But Go ahead. Yeah. You did this really, really great um, uh, episode on it was like a news update. And you sure. covered Jimmy Dore, who a couple weeks ago had who's somebody who who's somebody that was the one where I got very drunk. I yeah, you, I, that's yes, yeah. I, I had to get very stoned. Um, like I had to stop listening, pause it, and like pack my bowl because it was just fucking making my head hurt. But um, Jimmy Dore has on um a boogaloo boy who Jimmy Dore characterizes as an anarchist. When really this guy's like an anarcho-capitalist, so he's like pretty much a psycho. Right. Yeah. No, the anarcho-capitalists are using the kind of anarchist uh, label um, sometime in the early 2010s, I believe that, you know, a oh, lot of things left. Like, I'm a former, again, man. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Chris Cantwell. 
friend of the show, <laughs> friend of your pod. Now, hopefully, not a friend of not, mine. Not a friend of my pod either. Believe <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no. We 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 used to do a recurring segment called "Can't Want It." He's the crying Nazi. Yeah, and uh, he was he was a source of great amusement for us. I assure you, but a uh, terrible person. But he would routinely call himself an anarchist back in the day. Jesus. So, so Daniel, what? Let, let's explain to people who you know, because you got people that are that are novices that are coming into this and they haven't like read all the theory, or maybe they haven't listened to enough podcasts yet. Um, sure. But it's, I'm just gonna say it like this, man. We don't ally ourselves with fascists. I'll, I'll put it another way. Jimmy Dore is not smart enough to sit there. Also, he knows what he's doing. That's one thing that you guys highlight in the episode. He's doing it for clicks and shit and revenue. Okay, fine, dude. I'm a content creator, right? But it, I'm also not there like acting like, who I don't even know what this guy fucking believes in. Also, if you didn't know, then maybe you should research it. Maybe you should research what Boogaloo is. But I'll put it this way, and then I'll hand it to you. You are not smarter than these people. These people know exactly what they're doing when you sit down with them. And there's no fucking way that you're going to contort like their words and get them like have them say something that's even like halfway amenable to our goals. Right. That's going to be truthful. These people are just going to fucking lie and they're just going to use you like the rube that you are to push out these like dark, dark and heinous, like, you know, ideals that they have. So I'll hand it to you and kind of explain to people why you don't go around fucking talking to Boogaloo's. I mean, um, <laughs> sorry, I had to go off because this shit is fucking. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I mean, you know, um, um, <laughs> not just Boogaloo's, but Nazis. I mean, I've yeah. had plenty of, I mean, plenty of overt white supremacists, you know, like going like, hey, love to come on your show sometime and talk about like what we actually believe. I think you got some things wrong. Yeah. And it's like, uh, no, <laughs> if you find factual errors in what I've said, if you have different, you know, put out your own podcast. I have no interest in having you on to, to talk about this. And I mean, you know, I think there is, um, particularly as a content creator and as a, as someone who is kind of working, um, I don't expect everybody kind of as a content creator to understand the intricacies of uh, these kind of far right movements. And I completely understand people, uh, certainly in like 2015 or 2016, kind of seeing this, oh, well, there are like right wing Republicans there. They claim to be Nazis, but look, they're wearing a suit and tie. And like, we haven't seen that because there's not a lot of like understand kind of cultural understanding around this stuff at that time or seeing the Pepe memes and seeing this sort of thing and just kind of wanting to cover it, but not really not having resources out there that would help to contextualize. And that's where you get some of the like, you know, Richard Spencer, dapper young Nazi pieces. And that's where you get kind of a lot of these, these things. Five years later, you no longer have any excuse. Like, you know, we've gone through four years of Trump. There are plenty of resources out there. I mean, I don't speak German is in large way meant to be a resource for people kind of covering this to to kind of be able to understand this material. And I get emails from journalists regularly kind of going like, hey, thanks. You really helped me understand. Can you put me in touch with someone in such and such area? Yes, if I can, if I can, I absolutely will. You know, I will give you every piece of information I have. I'm happy to help out. Like, that's literally what I'm here for, right? <laughs> is to make, uh, is to help people understand this. Jimmy Dore is literally on his show kind of going, Boogaloo? What's the yeah. Boogaloo? I don't know. What, is, what are the Boogaloo boys? And it's like, they showed up to every fucking protest <laughs> over the last six, six fucking months, you fucking <laughs> asshole. Like, don't even, don't, you don't get to play that game. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. Especially as like an online content, you know exactly what the fuck yeah. you're talking about. You yeah. know, like, 
You don't know, or if you don't, you don't have the excuse. And then he brings him on. It's like he says he's pro LGBT. He says he's he says he's this. He says he's an anarchist. He's for you know just he just wants people to get along. And it's like yeah, why don't you go ask him uh, about about the contents of his Facebook feed, which was very easily findable. Um, I follow this guy Magnus Panvidia. I follow him on Twitter now, and he has all kinds of bullshit all over his Twitter. He watches a two minute video, which is like, we're just here for peace. And he stands next to people wearing a Black Lives Matter T-shirt. Anybody can fucking buy a Black Lives Matter T-shirt. And this is a form of entryism that the Boogaloo Boys are doing because they're not out for an actual restructuring of society. They're not out for, you know, <laughs> the goals of Black Lives Matter, you know, the ending of the of the police state, the ending of the prison system. They're not out for challenging patriarchal norms and challenging this kind of history of white supremacy in the country. They're using the kind of the power of the Black Lives Matter movement. They're using the power of um, the protest over the summer. They're using the power of this kind of like the, the 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 anger, the justified anger over massive police violence against black people, black and brown people overwhelmingly in this country and saying like, well, we had a guy who had too many guns and the cops just came in and shot this guy. And that guy, Duncan, Duncan, Duncan Limp, he is just as much a victim as Breonna Taylor. And it's like, I don't think the cops should have shot Duncan exactly. Limp, but that's not the same fucking no, thing. it's not the same you know? thing. And, and personally, and personally, just, I mean, again, as a white man, I'm maybe not my place. I would much rather see people like talking about Black Lives Matter, talking about the prison industrial complex, as opposed to individual victims of police violence. Yeah. Not because there isn't a real power to the individual victims of police violence, but that always just leads down this kind of rabbit hole of blaming the victim, et cetera, exactly. et cetera. And like talking about the ordinary average violence that is being meted out towards again overwhelmingly black and brown people in this country <laughs> and the size of the military of the, of the prison industrial complex that needs to be like a real focus like this is something that like i get like blindingly angry over like anything i even see about the prison industry just it drives me into a rage and again as a white man who is not subject mm -hmm. to these <laughs> to these same sorts of things i am likely never to see the inside of a prison <laughs> but <laughs> I am like there are per capita there are more people in this country uh in the US prison complex than there were at any other time in human history except yeah. for the top years of the Soviet gulag system maybe dipped slightly above our just ordinary average so like yeah again that's what that's my rant for this, for this well, episode. <laughs> well I think I think where that comes from man is and I'm going to ask you like a final question sure um but I think where that comes from again just to highlight is like you know having a materialist like understanding of the world right in a Marxist sense right versus what you know a lot of these you know folks like jimmy Dore and some of these like you know let, again i'm very happy that these people do not have political power yeah. i'm very happy that they do not but it's like this this anti-established this simplistic you know binary you know that's just like uh, you know establishment versus anti-establishment right right and it's 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 failing to understand that it's not just about as you said right the elites because that is often racially coded. It is often anti-Semitic, right? That is too that is too easy of an explanation, right? Of a narrative, right. right? Of good versus evil versus like, you know, I know it's simplistic, but those who have versus those who have not, right? Those who own, right, versus those who produce, right? And and one thing, one last thing I guess I went to ask you, outside of just, you know, cynical or, you know, self-promotional or, you know, anything for one's own benefit, right? Um, and pursuing these like endeavors of, you know, trying to talk to like, you know, like fascists, right? I think that there are 
some, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say leftist, but I'd really say sensible leftists, right? Sure. Like, there are no comrades of mine. Fuck that shit. But there are some of these people who I think are not doing it for selfish reasons, but who actually really do think that for whatever fucking reason that we need to be entertaining some of these people. Do you think that stems from, you know, again, a misunderstanding, sort of a theoretical misreading? Or do you think, I mean, I mean, we can't speak for individuals, whether it's sympathies, but like what what do you think that is? And why is that why is it easy to make that mistake for people, you think? I mean, without I mean, again, without talking about like kind of individual people and individual creators, I think there is this kind of focus on the heavily online contingent of yeah. the far right and this kind of degree to which you know if you do exist online if you're a heavily online person as i think all of us are here yeah. right deeply um, diseased yes if you are a deeply diseased horribly on to too on twitter person then um you're often kind of interacting with with these kinds of kind of far-right people at least these far-right ideas and um less so today than it was a few years ago but certainly it's kind of part of your environment hmm. and i find that there's a lot of um i think understandable distaste for this kind of, um, you know, kind of performative liberal, you know, more female drone pilot stuff, right? Yeah. And it's kind of more lightly this kind of, you know, we're not going to look at the systemic um, economic issues. We're not going to look at this kind of thing. We're just going to embrace the systems of power and just, you know, kind of put some put some more brand and black faces at the top yeah. of it and call everything good. Mm. And there's this sense in which, you know, the, this kind of idea that the um, that the poor, the the, the the online fascists are some poor kids from Appalachia who uh, fell into white power because of you know kind of drug overdoses and all that sort of thing. And there is a there is an element of truth to that, right? Yeah, you mentioned it earlier how privation, right? Like right, deprivation right. and privation can you know obviously influence like you know someone's political views. Yeah, and there's a sense that these people like as long as they're talking about you know kind of uh, oh we need some kind of distribution program, but only for white people, or we need you know, some kind of, uh, you know, kind of, kind of economic, I mean, you know, Richard Spencer will talk about, you know, the need for, uh, you know, economic distribution. And there's, there's a strong contingent on the far right. There is a growing movement to, to, uh, that doesn't include Richard Spencer, but, you know, we'll, we'll save that for another episode, maybe, <laughs> but, you know, go check out the multiple episodes I've done about the National Justice Party for more details on this. Um, but, uh, there is this kind of growing contingent of people who are looking to kind of pick up the, the kind of former burn, the disaffected Bernie fans and to say like, no, we have a place for you. We have a place. We want economic justice too. We want um, better environment. We want you to have um, a life. We want you to have a living. We want you to have a, a wage. Mm-hmm. We want you to be in, in better circumstances, but we want you to do that along racial lines. And there's this sense, I think among kind of many on the ostensible left, I, I like the term uh, who, sort of see that and go like, well, yeah, but if we can just get them to also accept black people, then which is an afterthought. That's always an afterthought. Right. Right. It's always an afterthought. And there's a, there's a group. I mean, there's a, there's a Reddit board. Um, I, I actually pulled up the, the stupid poll Reddit. Board, oh, fucking you know. hate that fucking. Oh. oh, I mean, and, you know, there's literally I pulled up one. I, I thought we were going to get more into this today, but I, I read this thing of, you know, like, um, what's the, you know, will there ever be a real backlash to open anti-white racism? And it's got 30, 47 comments at the time of this, uh, at the time of this response. Oh, and, you know, it's talking about like I was on Art the Bachelor and uh, there was a conversation about maybe our on the mods or it shouldn't all be white people. And I was like, oh, you're just discriminating against me because of my whiteness. And it's like, well, again, I think there is a real conversation we can have about kind of the value of 
diversity for diversity's sake. And even these kind of like liberal spaces or in these kind of small online spaces. And that's, I think there is a tokenist aspect to it, but I think there is also kind of a value in it as well. I mean, and I think that's a complicated space. But when you accept open fascists and you when you start to use like fascist rhetoric, when you start to use the term anti-white, which is literally created by a former member of the Reagan administration, Bob Whitaker, we did a whole episode about this as well, um, you know, which is literally part of the mantra, which was created as a way of injecting these ideas into the U.S. mainstream. And like when you and when these things become just part of ordinary conversation, it's worth pointing out. Dude, you're using a term. You are literally the frame in which you're speaking is built on fundamental racism. It's built on the worst kind of racism. It's built on and it's built on building this grievance towards, you know, the white victim of affirmative action, which God, I thought we were done with this in like nineteen ninety-five, but apparently we get to have these conversations every twenty no, years. No, because the right um, they keep regurgitating. I mean, they just keep reusing arguments yeah. and they're fucking some people that are stupid enough. Liberals as well to entertain this shit. Man. Yeah, no, and 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 it is, and and I mean, you know, one of the things, you know, uh, you you always say this is a Doomer podcast, and I I've been feeling very very Doomer lately. Um, <laughs> I think there I think there's some cause for hope, but I mean, you know, the, the one thing is like we got Biden in now, right? Yeah. And um, you know, the liberals are going back to sleep. They're they're not interested in this anymore. Yeah. And what do they what do they want to do? Is uh, you know, Biden is absolutely going to you know going to start prosecuting leftists. He's absolutely, you know, Black Lives Matter. If if uh, anarchist riots start up again in Portland. Uh, it's going to be way worse than it was under Trump because Trump was ultimately ineffective and he didn't have um, a lot of the support networks around and in the kind of larger governmental structure that would really kind of do the things that he wanted them to do. And as horrible as he was, if he had been more integrated into that <laughs> into that system, he could have gotten a lot more a uh, lot more shit accomplished. Uh, and by by that I mean uh, murdering a lot of leftists and uh, Brown. Yeah, so, yeah. I'll end this on two things. Uh... One, you know, I always say that to your last point that neoliberalism is the gateway to fascism. Well, liberalism, but neoliberalism, especially to me, is the gateway to fascism, because when you fail to I'm not saying that all these people, you know, if they got two thousand dollar monthly checks like, you know, these explicit, you know, fascists and, you know, these people who, you know, these QAnon folks. Right. Um, right. Implicit. Right. I'm not saying that these people would stop being like racist or believing conspiracy theories. But you know what? I would rather you just give that dude money so he's less preoccupied with like how he wants to kill me and more about like, all right, well, you know, at least like I'm eating good now. You know what I mean? I got like roof over my head. My kids can go to school, you know. Well, and having having services and having like a real like, you know, my brother um, got addicted to opiates. Not my brother, but, you know, like you can imagine, you know, my brother got addicted to opiates. I had a terrible experience trying to get him addiction services through both again the carceral state and the u.s medical system which nobody cared about him until finally he got help through uh this white nationalist through this through this reddit board that had a bunch of nazis on it who took him seriously and who talked to him and who helped him fill out some of this paperwork and like maybe if we had a better healthcare system that where people who did fall into that hole and who like had these kind of tragic things happen to them um had this kind of like universal service to where they could help themselves out um you would see less there's less of an on-ramp onto these kinds of problems you know and so the failure of even kind of basic social services and basic kind of social democracy in this country particularly since the rise of neoliberalism in the 90s is absolutely underlying all of this stuff which we didn't even begin to talk about here but yeah no it's it's absolutely part of that part of that same story yeah, yeah. man 
Uh, like, yeah, that, I mean, that that's I would, like I say, I always uh, say to all my guests, like always in this show on kind of like a hopeful note. But there's there's not really <laughs> I guess the only hope is just solidarity. Right. Yeah. Well, I, what I, people ask me, I've got I've got I've got a hopeful note, you know, um, people ask me, you know, what what do you how do you not despair? And I said, well, I get to do this. You know, I mean, it's it's work and it's stress and it's terrible to like track these people. But it's also rewarding because I get to I get to see how angry they get at me <laughs> and I get to see people who say, like, you really helped me. I didn't know. You know, one of the first great comments I got on the podcast like back after like the first or second episode was like, I was always too scared to look at these people. I didn't know. I, it was just but like listen to you talk about it gave me the strength to go look for myself and now they don't seem as scary because i've seen how ridiculous they are and how terrifying they are but also how ridiculous they are and i get i get emails from people who are like i was going down that path i was going to be a mass shooter and i listened to your show and suddenly i like it woke me up and i'm like oh i you know and how do you how do you even measure that right and i tell people like if you want to help there there's somebody in your town five miles from you within five miles who needs your help you can go volunteer at a school you can volunteer at a soup kitchen you can you know follow your local uh city council you know join your dsa maybe your dsa is shit most of them are but maybe it's better than shit and maybe there maybe there are options there you know somebody needs your help somebody needs your help there's a food not bombs probably in your area go and go and volunteer go and organize you know like join a union do something you know there is real the i you know i'm i'm in my 40s (laughs) You know, I've been at, I've been around for a while, and I'm a recovering liberal, so you know maybe maybe I don't have the the the, the deepest kind of theoretical knowledge, but I've seen the history of the stuff, and you know the, the Bernie Sanders, the two Bernie Sanders campaigns, and by extension, you know the Squad, and for all of the problems of electoralism, and again we could go on for hours and talk about the problems of electoralism, but for all of the problems of that, and for all the compromises that, that entails, there is a stronger left wing, at least in terms of its cultural movement, than there has been in this country in decades, probably since like Eugene Debs, right, or at least since the '60s, and that's a, that's a source of even though we don't have political power, and even though we don't have you know, even though we've been shut out of the halls of political power to such a great degree, I think there really is hope for the future. And I think there really is hope if we can kind of keep this going and if we can really like make moves to help each other. And I think that's, you know, that's, there's always hope on that level. Yeah. As I always say, man, the, the only way out is through together, man. You know, yep. yeah. Daniel, I really, really fucking enjoyed that. I'm going to have to bring you back for like a couple more episodes to dive into something yeah. that we barely scratched the surface of. But um, I know I've said it so many times, where can people find you? Tell people about your amazing podcast and where else people find sure. you. Um, yeah, you can find me. I'm on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. If you want to find me there, you can, you can, uh, that's where you can follow me. Um, uh, mostly tweeting about this kind of stuff. Uh, I have open DMs. If you want to message me, I don't like, I barely respond to any of them. I apologize. I'm just very bad at that, about that aspect of it. Um, I do have a Patreon. If you want to come support me, um, a dollar a month would be great. Um, the podcast is, uh, I don't speak German. It's uh, I don't speak German.libson.com. We are available on all major podcasting platforms. I'm sure there will be a link in the show notes. Um, and, uh, you can find us there and we are currently up to, we have done 80 episodes now. Um, each of them is about an hour and a half long. Some of them are out of date at this point, um, but uh, it is it is a, a look at uh, the most terrible people in the modern world. Um, mostly through, I spent, uh, we didn't really get into my history, but I spent, uh, I've been going on five years now of listening to um, far right podcasts and YouTube channels oh, um, for about 40 hours a week. Um, You're a brave soldier. And, uh, you know, hours and hours and hours of, of this awfulness. And uh, so I understand them through their propaganda and I understand them as they try to understand themselves. 
And that's what I try to uh, give to the world. That's what the podcast is for. And so eventually I'm going to start writing. Uh, hopefully there's a book coming down the pike. I keep wanting to start that and I never have time. But uh, yeah, please go support me. It's great. It's a good show, I think. And and you guys have a Patreon now, correct? Yeah, no. I uh, So the way Jack and I do it, because we had no plan for this to ever get more than like 200 listeners, is uh, we had no like strategy going forward. Um, I have a Patreon um, and that's patreon.com slash Daniel Harper. And then Jack has one. And you can give either of us a dollar a month to get the bonus the thing that we do uh, we're doing two kind of full episodes per month plus a bonus which will be kind of either usually it's going to be a movie discussion um and then the first one the the january one we did uh, punishment park which is a 1971 um bbc production kind of about the vietnam war and then uh for this one we're going to be doing the third band and i think we're going to use that as a way of talking about sort of pandemic politics and sort of uh, the 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 deprivation of um you know kind of societies towards their towards the marginalized and you know kind of what the post uh post-war uh what vienna and the in post-world war ii kind of kind of looked like so we haven't recorded that one yet we kind of had some we had, had a snag in our scheduling so i'm not sure exactly what we're going to talk about but that's sort of the angle um and we are we are trying to we do try to not just kind of cover, you know, like a movie or we're trying not to just cover like an individual, which we were kind of doing for the first two years is we kind of pick a topic and then I just kind of explained it. But we're trying to go a little bit deeper and trying to make sure every episode really has some thematic content or it has some kind of, um, it connects to something that's a little bit more um, important or something a little bit larger. And so that's kind of the goal for, for 2021 and moving forward is to just kind of is to make sure every episode is really meaningful in its own sense. So. Yeah. And I, I can say I'm like very much looking forward to what you guys put out next. Like I've said, I've been listening to your show, like not since it came out, but like for like maybe about two years now. And I've gone back yeah. and listened to like later episodes. So y'all like instead of a cup of coffee, which you can't even go to the coffee shop now, you shouldn't be going anywhere. Just throw Daniel and Jack, just throw up like, you know, a dollar each or more a month and I'm you know, let them keep doing this great ass work, man. Cause it's, it's, it's helped me. And I'm sure it's, uh, it's helped a lot of people, as you said. And I think more people need to know about, uh, the creeping fast, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it is, it is something that, you know, not everybody wants to listen to it. And I get that. I mean, people do kind of, some people just binge them, you know? Yeah. I, I listened to 30 episodes last week and I'm like, slow the fuck down. Yeah. Some people go, I listened to three episodes and I couldn't take it anymore, but here's a dollar anyway, because I really like you keep doing it. It's like, that's fine too. I get it. I get it. It's not for everybody, but um, we, we're going to keep putting in work and uh, yeah, it's, it, it is still necessary. Believe it or not, even if Trump is gone. Um, one of the things that I say a lot is things are going to get worse before they get better. Hell, Daniel, thanks so much again, comrade. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get you back. Off for <laughs> you know, sure. it's, it's great. It's great. It's been great being here. I really appreciate it. Um, it's a good show. All right. Thanks. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates.